This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Play-Doh put out a 50th anniversary limited edition perfume that is the same aroma. And I had a TV producer here and he said, oh, let me spritz myself with this. And no one wanted to be around him the rest of the day. Bit creepy. It was a lot of Play-Doh. Hello, hello. This is Dallas Campbell and welcome once again to Patented, my podcast all about the history of inventions and the history of technology that comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes and flavours and ideas brought to you from History Hit. The subject of today's episode is in my hand. It's a little yellow plastic container with a pink lid and it's got in large friendly letters on the front, Play-Doh. And I don't know if you are like me. Of course, as soon as you take the lid off the Play-Doh, yes, you can poke it and you can make all kinds of fun things, fun shapes with Play-Doh. But it's the smell. Can you smell that? I wish you could smell it. I'm holding up to the microphone for you to smell. It's got such a specific odour. It's a really pleasant kind of almondy, vanilla-y odour that could be nothing else. You just automatically know it's Play-Doh. And I think that's one of its, certainly for its nostalgia factor, that's one of its successes. But its origins are really, really interesting. Its origins actually come from home cleaning products, believe it or not. But more fittingly, it's also the story of a nursery school teacher, a nursery school teacher called Kay Zufall and her interesting idea. It's also the story of a children's TV presenter, who you may remember if you're from America, called Captain Kangaroo. So there you go. Captain Kangaroo meets primary school teacher Kay Zufel. Where is this going? Well, to tell us, my guest today, Christopher Bench from the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Imagine working in that museum. That's got to be the best museum to work in ever. A museum that's dedicated to toys and play and delightful things. Where is this story going? Let's find out.
Chris, lovely to see you. Thanks very much for joining me. Where on earth are you? I am coming to you live from the office of one of my colleagues, our digital curator, who has an amazing bunch of vintage technology all around me, as well as a really good microphone so I can talk to you, Dallas. I had this kind of visions you'd be surrounded by toys and a bit like in sort of Tom Hanks in Big or something. In my office, I am. There's my childhood hula hoop is part of my constant background for Zoom calls because you never know when a hula hoop emergency is going to crop up and I need to do it on the spot. Really quickly, before we start Play-Doh, who invented the hula hoop? It was a creation of a company called Whammo that was known for the Frisbee. And the hula hoop was just one of a string of all the novelty playthings that they put out over the years. Hey, guess what I got on my desk? Play-Doh. Ah, of course. I've got to say, you know, we did have Play-Doh when I was a kid. I was more of a plasticine kind of child, which I suppose has similarities. It was that sort of open-ended kind of play and you could model and just have fun with it. But I think, was plasticine bigger than Play-Doh in the UK? I I don't really know. I I don't know the sales statistics and often toy companies are really closed mouthed. It's not like weekend box office at the movies that you can find out those details. They're deep secrets. I think the thing with plasticine, as I seem to remember as a kid, it was a it was a better kind of mold. You could make more things out of plasticine from memory, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just... More detailed? Play-Doh will Yeah, more detailed. Play-Doh's sort of lumpy. We, you got to admit that. It's a little bit lumpy. Anyway, the thing about Play-Doh, if you ask anybody my age, 25, I'm not 25, <laughs> very old, is the, the first thing they say, oh my God, I remember Play-Doh. It smells so amazing. People always have that Proustian, à la recherche, ton perdu, excuse my French, the memories of, you know, that smell memory that we get with, with Play-Doh. I had that very viscerally. We did a display at Toy Fair, the big U.S. toy trade show Mm. that happens every February. And I brought Play-Doh with us for part of our display. And I thought people taking a break from the trade show would come and make beautiful creations. And what I found was this sort of furtive look. And these grown-ups would come in and they would kind of glance around and they would pry up the lid. (laughs) And I could see them turning into eight-year-olds in a matter of seconds as they took a whiff of something they obviously hadn't smelled for maybe decades. That's it. Okay, let's take the lid off. Let's have a smell and see if we can... uh... I kind of Googled Play-Doh smell the other day, just thinking about it. People describe it as sort of almondy, vanilla-y... But it's 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 just Play-Doh. There is no real. There is no way of of describing it. But it does give you that that Proustian Madeleine. It, it transports you immediately. You don't have to think about it with the smell. It goes to that deep into your brain somewhere. That's right. But a small amount of Play-Doh aroma is good. Play-Doh put out a 50th anniversary limited edition perfume that is the same aroma. And I had a TV producer here, and he said, oh, let me spritz myself with this. And no one wanted to be around him the rest of the day because it was overpowering Play-Doh rather than that Proustian kind of evanescent kind of aroma. It was a lot of Play-Doh. Okay, I've now taken the Play-Doh and it's in my hand. It's much kind of, it's much softer than plasticine. It's, it's much more sort of malleable. And also the, what I love is just looking at the packaging, that the lettering and the colouring. And it's just, the, it, it is evocative of, of, of simpler times. 
Actually, funny enough, talking about Proustian memories and smell, it kind of the story of this, from what from what I gather, and you'll be able, you'll be able to tell me, it sort of taps into lots of things. When we when we talk about inventions, things happening by chance, things happening for other reasons, things happening by trial and error, and actually, if we talk about sort of neuroscience and, and Plato, we really have to thank the kind of industrial revolution. If we go right back to this, because it wasn't designed. Or originally, what the, the actual ingredients wasn't designed to be a toy, was it? It was something completely different. It was not at all. And it is up there with Silly Putty, another toy that was not meant to be a toy, the Slinky as well. And I love that it was a sort of turnaround history, that here was something that was about to go down the tubes as a total failure, and it pulled the fat out of the fire and was able to become a global success as a toy. Yeah. So let's start then. So I mentioned the Industrial Revolution, coal production. Take us from there. (laughs) Let's go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. It goes back to the Cretaceous period (laughs) when coal was being formed. Yeah, there's the the Carl Sagan quote. If you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you first have to invent the universe. So let's go back to the Big Bang. No, okay. So where, where should we start with our story? You tell me, Chris. Well, let's start with coal burning furnaces or kitchen ranges and kerosene lamps and what was heating and illuminating people's homes. It was a big step forward over an open fireplace or a candle, but it also put out lots of soot. And that was something that we don't confront in our own homes. We have our own forms of grime that bug us, but soot covering everything in your home was something that really frustrated people. And that led to a spring cleaning, especially moment when you were trying to beat back this constant film of soot. But for things like wallpaper, you couldn't just bring a bucket and a scrub brush because there would go your beautiful expensive wallpaper down the drain or into a puddle on the carpet. That's where people invented something called wallpaper cleaner. It came, in this instance, in gallon-sized cans, sort of like a paint can, and it was a lot, in my school experience, like a kneaded eraser. If you've ever taken a drawing class and you have one of these erasers that picks up the pencil from your drawing paper but doesn't scrape up the paper the way the eraser on the end of your pencil does. So you were doing was rubbing that down the wall. You had this white glob of gluey stuff and it would physically lift the soot off your wall without scrubbing the wallpaper to smithereens. You know, in terms of the chemistry of it, in terms of what it's actually made of, who are we talking about? Because presumably there were there were different sort of brands, different varieties of wallpaper cleaning gloop. The part of this story that applies is a company in Cincinnati, Ohio, that made a product called Cutall Wallpaper Cleaner, K-U-T. OL, and it was cutting through all the grease and grime in your home, and it was lifting that off into a white glob that turns into an ugly gray glob, and you throw it away. But come the 1940s and 50s in the U.S., people were well under the way to replacing any sort of coal-burning furnaces. They had electric ranges, they had baseboard heat, they had radiators. 
there was not the soot problem that there once was. And the folks at Cutall could quite literally see the handwriting on the wallpaper that <laughs> they were headed down the tubes. There was no more market for their product. Did they not have other products? They had other sort of soapy home maintenance kinds of things, but this was kind of their bread and butter. And it was the one that was going to take them into company oblivion. Okay. And from there, what happened? Fortunately, it's not necessarily what you know, but sometimes it's who you know. And in the Cutall wallpaper family, extended family, there was an in-law, a woman named Kay Zufall, who was a nursery school teacher. And she had the concept that she had read about in a magazine that she could take wallpaper cleaner, roll it out, use cookie cutters, and make holiday ornaments for on your Christmas tree, for on your window. Hang on, she was the in-law. What relationship was she to the Cuttle family? Daughter-in-law of the McVicker family that owned Cuttle. So just tell us about the McVicker family. Like, who were they? Were they sort of Thomas Edison (laughs) entrepreneurs? Or were they just kind of regular folk who just happened to stumble into the world of wallpaper cleaning? They were good salespeople. They knew their products. They also knew that there was this need for wallpaper cleaner. They had added soap to wallpaper cleaner, so they had this kinds of sudsy products. And But they were limited in their kind of horizons. They were not a conglomerate. We'll be back after this short break. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? And it's very interesting to think about why it's Caesar in particular when there have been many political assassinations in the past millennia, why Caesar's has been the one that is brought up again and again. Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? In the Jurassic, you see dinosaurs get bigger and you see meat-eating dinosaurs grow into things like the size of buses. And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships. She is always derided as this sort of terrible adulteress, but at least as old as Homer, at least the 8th century BCE, is a counter tradition in which Helen doesn't go to Troy. She's never Helen of Troy, she's Helen of Egypt. Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So tell us about Kay. She suddenly got her wallpaper cleaner and suddenly started making cookie cutter Christmas tree decorations or whatever. Well, it was a way to solve a problem for her nursery school students. I know that I grew up with modeling clay that looked less like Play-Doh and much more like the modeling clay that forms the animated characters Gumby and Pokey. Kind of hard. It's it's actually earth that is clay and it hardens up way too fast. Proper clay. Like proper yes. clay as if you were going to make an ashtray or whatever in, in, exactly. pot, in pottery cloth. So she's got the class of primary school kids or very young children and some cookie cutters. Did she just have the idea? Okay, I'm going to use this stuff to have some fun with There was a women's magazine that suggested this for your holiday crafts, that you could use wallpaper cleaner. And women's magazines are always repurposing something you've got around the house. You have a leftover scrap of lace or pencil shavings or something, and you could turn it into a craft product. We call it a hack now. Exactly. So she read this in some women's magazine. Right. She adapted it. The kids loved the project. She put the wallpaper cleaner on a cookie sheet in her home oven, dried it out a little. It made great holiday ornaments. And she had that sort of light bulb moment that I may have found the salvation for the family business. This is not a wallpaper cleaner anymore. This is a craft material. So she got in touch with the McVickers. Yes. She got in touch with the McVickers, said, here's my brilliant insight and they recognized it for what it was they had the production line they had the material they just needed to repackage it and rebrand it okay well this is a good point to talk about what's actually in this stuff i've got it in my hand and i'm and i'm squeezing it and it's and it's very nice so at the at the point it's wallpaper cleaner just can you take us through the ingredients sort of roughly like what's the main there's kind of a flour and water base to it okay with some soap in the wallpaper cleaner because you want to cut through the grime and lift that off without the abrasion as well as some clay qualities. I'm not sure that it's actually kaolin clay, but it is something that would be ideal and have that continuously malleable quality. It doesn't dry out instantly. You know, because one of the things about Play-Doh, it's non-toxic. Like, did they have to sort of, when they say, oh, we're going to repurpose this as as a child's toy, did they have to change the ingredients of it? They took out the soap because while you want kids to have familiarity with soap, not necessarily in their mouths, because we know kids do eat Play-Doh. It's probably one of those things. If you don't consume at least a tablespoon of Play-Doh in your childhood, you're not going to turn out right. That's exactly right. Is this smell by accident? No. Was it purposefully created? 
it was purposefully added as part of the renovation of the wallpaper cleaner into the craft product. So tell us about Kate. Tell us that she made a billion dollars out of this and became immensely wealthy and and was hailed as, as a great genius. She should have, but she was a woman of great presence and great equanimity. She was not dismayed that she didn't become a billionaire from this. And she not only came up with the concept, but she came up with the name because the cut-all people said, okay, it's not wallpaper cleaner. We're going to call it rainbow modeling compound, which is not exactly something that rolls off the tongue. And Kay said, no, that's not going to work. You need something better. And she came up not only with the concept, she came up with the name Play-Doh, gave it away, It was for the general good of the family. It was not for her benefit. And she did not make out like a bandit by any means. We've got a name. We've got this new product with this smell. Was there a point where it suddenly became a kind of global phenomenon? And and like, why did it become such a global phenomenon? Well, it went through sort of an awkward intermediate period because they were used to selling it in gallon cans. So they marketed it to school districts in gallon cans. So we're going to sell massive quantities in these big buckets. And that was a limited audience that was... There was volume out there. You weren't reaching the direct consumer, the kids, who were the ones who were going to enjoy it. And that's where they had some marketing savvy and great salesmanship through another McVicker family member, Joe McVicker, who talked his way in to see the U.S. kids show star, a man named Bob Keeshan, whose show was Captain Kangaroo. And that was the go-to place to promote your product if you wanted to reach a kid audience in the 1950s into the 1960s in the U.S. That shows a lot of savvy because, you know, the 1950s and, you know, television is relatively new, particularly sort of commercial television. The fact that they realized the power that television would have in the 1950s in terms of marketing stuff. Or were there already lots of kind of toys being marketed in the 50s and Some, but it was a new thing. One of the ones that had been a breakthrough in that advertising sort of scope was Mr. Potato Head, which Ah. has laid claim to being the first television advertised toy. Mm. And TV also certainly helped the launch of Barbie in 1959, when Ruth Handler, one of the founders of Mattel, bought up all the time on the Mickey Mouse Club show to promote exclusively Mattel products directly to kids. That's really interesting. There does seem to be a period in the 1950s where, and I suppose all those toys are so iconic. You know, films like Toy Story, you see Mr. Potato Head, you see Barbie, you see Play-Doh. I don't know if you see Play-Doh. But you know what I mean? Those 50s toys seem to be particularly iconic. And maybe it's just my age or our age, but are toys as, as revered now as they were for us? No, there were fewer fractures in our culture and less segmentation. And in the U.S., there were just three networks uh, for television. Everybody was watching the same things, hearing the same ads, and you weren't siloed off into your specialties of what we have streaming or cable or all the other ways that we get our information and our entertainment. That's a really interesting point. You know, yeah, that fracturing of culture. I suppose... 
it's why nostalgia is such big business, isn't it? Because it kind of brings us all together again to a, into a time where we where we all watch the same movies, we all watch the same TV shows. That's the the last time we had a kind of a shared culture or sort of shared values a long time ago. So those yeah, those fifties toys are really iconic. Kay Zufall may not have made money off of Play-Doh, but Captain Kangaroo did because Play-Doh couldn't afford to offer to pay him up front, so they cut him a royalty deal, essentially. If he would mention it on his show, he could earn 2% of sales. And he loved the product so much that he was promoting as many as three times a week on his television program. So 2%, how much money, how much money is that? Is that like a, just That's an a lot. amount of money? Like what, how popular was Play-Doh at that time? Like how many units were they selling? It was very popular. And that's a big percentage cut out of the overall take on a sale of a can of Play-Doh. They also realized that toys sell at a higher price point than wallpaper cleaner does. The price of Play-Doh per ounce was about five times what it was for wallpaper cleaner. So you're selling essentially the same thing and you're making five times as much money on it. Play-Doh changed over the years as well. So you had those early kind of Captain Kangaroo times in the, in the 1950s. And obviously they became different colours and became very popular. But there was kind of, on the actual packaging themselves, I kind of noticed looking at pictures of how the lettering had changed and different characters advertising Play-Doh as well. You had a kind of like an elf-like kind of uh, sort of advertising character, which changed into a boy with a baseball cap and and various other things. What was known as Play-Doh Pete. Mm. And it was a little boy with kind of an artist beret at one point. Yeah, that's In that sort of... 50s hipster kind of mode and then became as you say a boy with a baseball cap that it's adapting to its environment i think the genius of play-doh so i've got i've got it in my hand and and it's it is very kind of comforting but it was when play-doh and i don't know when this came out they they came up with their fun factory which is when you kind of put play-doh in things and then pull a handle and it kind of squirts through holes and it's just really really satisfying kind of like watching a sausage meat in a sausage factory you're absolutely right that fun factory in the 1960s and all sorts of molding play-doh into different things there's dr drill and fill play-doh that teeth are play-doh and for you aspiring dentists out there then you can drill into these crumbling molars in someone's mouth you can form play-doh into pizzas and various themed products so it it helps create i don't know a scaffolding for your play rather than just having a can with play-doh in it there's something for you to do with it yeah, and it still fits into that kind of open-ended play. What is the appeal of Play-Doh? Do you think? I mean, you're a toy expert. Why is it so wildly successful? I think one of the great things about it is open-ended. It is unlimited in what your imagination can turn it into. And that is something really appealing to me in an era when so many playthings are licensed. You know the complete backstory. You've seen the movie. You've read the comic book. And it sort of comes to you with all this baggage attached. So Play-Doh is something that is kind of a a blank slate, a blank piece of clay that you can run with it. I totally agree with you. And I think exactly the same thing. And and when I was a kid, I I loved Lego. Like Lego was my absolute thing. And I had just a big kind of bag, duffel bag full of Lego. And I would just 
go and make things and or shape or anything. And then Lego became much more kind of directed in terms of rights. Here's a box of Lego and you're going to make this digger and here's the instructions to make this digger. And then you make the digger and then it's kind of over. And it isn't that sort of open-ended thing. And, and are we missing something in our child's toy manufacturing now? Like you say, everything's heavily marketed towards, you know, movies and TV. Right. And, and Lego turned into kits mm. in my kind of parlance. Yeah. You're going to make the Death Star from Star Wars and you make it as you say, and you put it on a shelf or you hang it up in your bedroom and it's done. You don't turn it into a castle or some other sort of spaceship or something entirely fictional. No, you're right. Although, you know, in terms of marketing, 1950s, obviously, Captain Kangaroo was marketing this. So we've we've always had marketing. We have. And some of those licenses allow toy manufacturers to refresh something that's been around. You don't have to invent a new brick for Lego. You just turn it into a new project that you're going to create. Actually, you know what? This is a good story because it gets us into history, the history of the Industrial Revolution. It then gets us into manufacturing. It then gets us into a chance encounter with somebody who found a different thing. It then gets us into neuroscience, the smell, the importance of that brain, smell, sense, memory. It then gets us into marketing, trial and error, all the kind of things of which innovation and invention relies on is summed up in the Play-Doh story. So that's made me very, very happy. And it's something that parents keep buying, in part because they had it when they were kids, and I turned out okay, so my kids are going to have Play-Doh, and it becomes one of those rare evergreen toys that is passed down generation to generation. It doesn't fall out of favor. It is something that is omnipresent. The other great part of it, it has a very low price point. There's no big threshold to saving up for Play-Doh because it is inexpensive. One of humanity's great triumphs. My kids, when they were very little, and my son wasn't played, it was Blue Tack. He used to, as a, as a very young child, would play with Blue Tack incessantly. And then for weeks, he had this terrible cold. We couldn't work, his nose was blocked. It was only then we realised that for months it had a big lump of blue tack up his nose. And we'd ha- we had to take him to hospital. I had to get pulled out. If it was Play-Doh, it would have just dissolved, probably. There you go. Um, Chris, listen, thank you very much. We can let you out of your basement in your toy museum. In fact, just very quickly, give us a pitch of, uh, the pitch of your toy museum. You're in Rochester, New York. You celebrate toys of all kinds. For my listeners in New York, why should they come and visit you? They should make the trip here because we fill an entire city block. We have more than half a million toys, dolls, games, video games. We attract more than 600,000 guests every year. We're expanding so that we'll bring in a million people every year. And it is such an exciting, hands-on, dynamic place for kids of every age, whether you're eight or 88. And in the summer, we have to do something called the Goodbye Parade because we give you maracas and flags and say, we're going to march you out the doors and we're going to close the doors behind you because otherwise kids and adults want to just stay here do that night at the museum thing. Guess what? Human beings love to play. It is a fundamental thing that humans like to do. And so thank you very much, Chris, for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure, a joy. Thank you for taking me uh, down memory lane. And thank you to Freddie, my producer, for sending me the Play-Doh to play with. My house now stinks of Play-Doh, which is not a bad thing. Okay, thank you. 
That's your lot for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed reminiscing about Play-Doh and aromas and smells and squidgy things. Thank you very much to Christopher for joining me for that. If you've enjoyed the episode, don't forget to go and listen to all the other episodes. We've got lots up now on the patented website or wherever you get your podcasts from. And also don't forget, if you've got an idea for an episode, a story you'd like me to tell, an idea you'd like me to investigate, get in touch. We shall stick it gladly on our list. And of course, we will credit you if we do it. Next week, we've got an interesting one. Marie Van Britten Brown. I'm guessing you don't know who she is. Well, we're going to remedy that. She is, in fact, the designer of the very first modern home security system. So if you've got one of those ring cameras in your house or some such camera device to keep your home safe, this is the origins of that. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.